Good morning. It's my privilege to be your first foot of this congregation. Those of you who are not from a Scottish background on New Year, the first visitor's foot across the threshold, across the door or in the door of your house is honoured as being the first foot. And uh, uh, that's my privilege this morning. And uh, with me, I bring the greetings of my home congregation, Brotty Ferry Presbyterian Church, uh, four miles down the river by canoe, slightly longer by road, but uh, we're one in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we begin to study God's word, let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength, our rock, and our redeemer. For we ask this in Jesus' name. I decided to preach on Hebrews chapter 1 this morning. I believe it's appropriate uh, to the time of year, uh, a new beginning, and we want to start with the greatest, with the best. I'm not talking about the preacher. I'm talking about the, the passage of Scripture, the subject that the Scriptures teach. That greatest is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in these first, this first chapter of Hebrews, we read, In these last days... God has spoken to us by his Son, and this is an amazing introduction indeed. Before we get into the chapter, we should pause for a moment and consider its historical context. Put simply, when was it written? A significant event in the history of the Jewish, the Hebrew people, during the first century AD was the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Now, the letter to the Hebrews makes no mention of this happening, and because it was such a cataclysmic event, I think we are on fairly sound ground by concluding that this letter was written sometime before AD 70, otherwise it would have been mentioned, especially when there are so many references throughout the letter to the temple, to the sacrifice, to the high priest, to the most holy place, and so on. Assuming, therefore, that the pre-AD 70 date of the letter is correct, then the context is this. All that the Jewish people held dear, the temple, the high priesthood, the animal sacrifices, the holiest place within the temple, were all shortly to disappear. And those who placed their trust in these things, even if they escaped from persecution with life and limb intact, were about to lose all. Drastic changes to Jewish religious practice were about to happen in AD 70. With the destruction of the temple that year, the practiced Jewish religion has never been the same since. Even the Passover today, as it's practiced today, is not as it was then. It lacks one great ingredient, that is the sacrificial blood of a lamb slain for a house and the blood spattered on the door and lintel of each house. But to the Jewish people who had turned to Christ in faith, trusting him as their sin-bearing Messiah, 
notwithstanding the civil and religious and military convulsions of the events of AD 70, the loss of the temple was for them but a transition from shadow to reality, from forerunner to fulfillment. Now, the teaching of the Bible and the teaching from our Lord Jesus Christ himself is that he, not the stone building, but he himself is the true temple. And when challenged by the authorities in John chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, why he'd driven out the money changers and the traders from the temple forecourt, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And he was referring to his own body and to his resurrection three days after his death on the cross of Calvary. For in Jesus, come to this world, the fullness of God dwells in the bodily form, a human bodily form. In Jesus, God and man are one. They're reconciled. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our eternal great high priest. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross of Calvary is that one only but wholly adequate sacrifice to take away all his people's sins, and it is unrepeatable. Jesus' ascension to heaven is his re-entering the eternal most holy place where he intercedes for us day and night without interruption. If I have to sum up the entire message of the letter to the Hebrews in four words, it would have to be this, Jesus is the greatest. Now, the letter is an exciting book. It challenges our minds and hearts as 21st century people to understand the person and work of Christ from a different perspective, one outside our culture and experience. Now, since some people may neglect the Old Testament uh, as a vehicle that God uses to reveal himself, we can use the Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, to correct and put in perspective any shallow ideas we may have about prophecies, examples, foreshadows, and types we have in the Old Testament with their fulfillment in Jesus. Two words we can use. To explain this, newer and better. Verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That is, in the Old Testament era, God spoke to people through various means. Prophets spoke directly God's words. Also, heavenly angelic messengers spoke for God. And occasionally God revealed himself personally in visible form. He revealed himself to Moses from the burning bush or for the whole people of Israel in the pillars of cloud and fire. He also spoke to people through dreams and visions and symbols and rituals. Then in verse 2 we read, But in these last days God has spoken to us by his Son." whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he, made, he also made the universe. Now God has spoken to us through his Son, God's newest and best 
and most enduring word to mankind. The Son of God himself is the Word of God. When we speak, our sentences issue forth from us. They reveal our minds to people who hear us. The Father speaks the Word. The Son, by means of his breath, the Spirit. Jesus, then, is the very Word of God in human form, God's Word incarnate. God has sent his Son and spoken his last, that is, his definitive word to men and women in these, we read, last days. This means the climactic days, the coming of Jesus into the world that we were remembering a week ago was the beginning, the beginning of the climax of history. And we're still living in these climactic times. This last age of history is characterized by the rule of God's Son. God has appointed him heir of all things. Now, man was made in the image of God, and thus humanity, in a sense, is God's heir. But because of Adam's sin, however, we were disqualified from the inheritance, disinherited. But in Christ we become heirs once more, joint heirs with Jesus and rulers of the cosmos God has created for his children. Christ has inherited the rule over the universe from the Father, and in union, joined to him, we also participate in that rule. And it is appropriate that God's Son be the heir. First, he's the right person to be the heir. Second, he is the eternal Son of God, and thus is the Father's heir as God. And third, as the eternal Son of God, he created the universe in the beginning. <clears throat> as co-heirs with Christ, Christians are heirs of excellence, for there is nothing third-rate, substandard, second-class about the Lord we serve. Christ has given us ultimate truth, and he demonstrates creativity, beauty, and the disciplined power of love. And in this first chapter of the letter to the Hebrews, we are directed to the greatness of Christ as the Son of God. It is clearly stated that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, in the Old Testament, in places, angels are called sons of God, but never is any angel called the Son of God. It is clear that angels and men and women are called offspring of God in a created sense, but only Jesus is the Son of God throughout eternity. Jesus the Son is eternally equal to the Father. And as God, Jesus the Son reigns and rules over all creation, not only over creatures such as men and angels and animals, but also over the wind and the fire, the weather, the climate. That angels become winds and fire may be truly amazing to us. But what is more amazing is that in Jesus, God has become man. Jesus is the everlasting Son. 
That Christ's throne is for eternity should fill us with awe and wonder, and it should lead us to worship. Now, people today (coughs) may still occasionally look for a God with a small g, whose main purpose, they think, or hope, is to make things better for us here and now. But the bigger, better, more wonderful picture is of Christ on the everlasting throne, not subject to decay or rebellion. The late theologian R.C. Sproul said that in the enthroned Christ, we can trust our now to the one who rules forevermore. Let's look back over verses 2 and 3. There are seven excellences of the Son revealed in these verses. First, the Son is heir of all things that God has made. We've just examined this. Second, the Son made the universe in the beginning, and we've just looked at this also. Thirdly, the Son is the brightness of God's glory. That is, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus, glory is the visible revelation of God's own essence. Glory is what shines forth from God, and we see this in Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews is describing what would otherwise be undescribable. When we see Jesus, we see the bright shining that comes from the Father. God cannot help but be glorious, so he inevitably (coughs) shines forth. And this eternal shining has become flesh, human. The Son of God, Jesus, is the shining of God. And created all things hint at God's glory. Jesus is God's glory. The Son is the exact representation of his being. The first man, Adam, was the created image of God. But the Son is the exact uncreated image of God the Father. Being fully God, the Son is the absolutely authentic, genuine representation of God's being. The one can be identified with the other. Thus, there cannot be any higher authority than the word spoken to us and endorsed through the Son. Jesus the Son perfectly represents the Father to us. Fourthly, we read the Son upholds all things by his powerful word or the word of his power. Jesus, the Son, is the the Father's eternal word, and he holds all things in the universe together. Jesus is the great and almighty and enduring governor, overseer of the universe. This is what the theologians call providence, and there's a lovely definition or description of God's providence in the old Heidelberg Catechism. It reads, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them 
that every leaf and blade and rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Not by luck, but by his fatherly hand. Sixthly, we read in these verses, the Son has provided purification for our sins. Here is the cross of Calvary. Here is the blood of the atoning sacrifice. Here is the divine wrath removing and human sin removing sacrifice. Here is the saving and sustaining (coughs) love of God for sinners written in large letters for all to see. Sin is impurity. It causes impurity. Impurity erects a barrier between us and God. And no one can draw near to God until cleansed of our impurity. But on the cross, by that one only and unrepeatable offering of himself as the sacrifice, Jesus, the Son of God, has dealt with that once and for all and has taken away the impurity. The barrier is removed and we have access to God. Then seventhly, the Son has been enthroned at the right hand of the majesty of God. Excuse me just a moment, please. By way of resurrection and ascension, Jesus the Son has been enthroned in the heavenly realms. And this is proof positive to us that the barrier of our impurity is broken down and Christ is there for us and he's there over us. He reigns over all people and over all his rivals. Jesus is the greatest. He is beyond comparison with any creature. He is beyond comparison with any teacher. He is beyond comparison with any prophet. He's beyond comparison with any angel. And it's this last point that the writer to the Hebrews develops further. He doesn't actually compare, rather he contrasts Jesus with angels and comes to the conclusion that no comparison is possible because Jesus is always greater and always better. Let's look at these contrasts in verse 5 to 13. They are all from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and with one exception, they are all from the book of Psalms. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Verse 6, and again, he says, When he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Verse 7. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. Then in verses 8 to 13. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, 
and the heavens are the works of your hand. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is beyond comparison with any rival. Jesus' influence on history is not just the perpetuating of his memory. Karl Marx's headstone in London's Highgate Cemetery perpetuates his memory. Lenin's tomb with the embalmed body in Moscow's Red Square perpetuates Lenin's memory. Mao Zedong's embalmed body lies in a glass case in Beijing, and it perpetuates Mao's memory. And I could add others to the list. And they all have two things in common. They all died years ago. That's the first point. And the second point they have in common is they are all still dead. But Jesus rose from the dead and reigns. He lives. And the gospel brings the greatest blessing to this world that the world has ever known or experienced. It has brought forgiveness, love, joy, and peace. Christ has mended broken hearts and lives and still does. He gives hope to those who despair. Through him, the light of heaven dispels the darkness of death. He liberates uh, individuals and nations. The gospel has delivered people from ignorance, slavery, poverty, and degradation. All that is truly good, noble, pure, and beautiful comes from Jesus. Christ's resurrection influence continues still wherever he is accepted, trusted, and served. All Christ's rivals lie moldering in their graves, and they will rise at the last day to meet their maker in judgment, and to their shock and horror, they will see their maker is Jesus. His enemies will all be summoned before him for judgment and justice, The founders of false religions will be there. The liar who denies the Father and the Son will appear before Jesus on the judgment day and be condemned. The founders of the various pseudo-Christian cults will be there. Preachers who deny that Jesus is God who preach and teach that we earn salvation by our own efforts will be there. The preachers who pour scorn on the divine authority of the Bible who dismiss Christ's resurrection as a myth, who in this age call wrong right and right wrong, and who seek blessing and acceptance for what God has condemned as an abomination, who teach that Jesus didn't die to save us from our sins. Let them be warned. Unless they repent, they will all be there standing before Jesus in judgment, condemned. Why? Because Jesus is the greatest. As we draw to a close, let's think what we have in Christ. And I'm going to read a list which is not original from me. 
I wish I had written down who it was that wrote this. I think it was uh, Joel Beakey from the United States, but I'm not 100% sure. I wrote it down some years ago. Those who have Christ <coughs> have everything. In Christ, we have a righteousness that can never be lost. In Christ, we have a treasure that can never be stolen. In Christ, we have a security that can never be breached. In Christ, we have a love that can never be removed. In Christ, we have an access that can never be denied. In Christ, we have a champion who can never be beaten. In Christ, we have a sovereign who can never be deposed. In Christ, we have a wonderful, merciful, gracious, powerful, kind, majestic, glorious Savior who will never let us perish and who will never allow anyone nor anything to pluck us from his nail-pierced hands. If we are wise, and we've not already done so, we will come to him. We will trust him. We will believe in him. We will accept him. We will confess him. We will obey him. We will love him. We will serve him. We will praise him. We will honor him. And we will worship him and adore him. This is the Jesus whom I heartily commend to you this first Sunday of the year 2021. Amen, and may God bless to us the preaching of his holy word.